This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Throughout its reign, the British Empire stole a lot of stuff. Today, those objects are usually housed in museums and galleries, and they usually come with polite plaques. But the truth behind those objects? Sometimes it's not so polite. My name is Mark Fennell, and come with me on a global adventure through the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, often tragic mysteries of how these artefacts got to where they live today. Stuff the British stole. Available wherever you get your podcasts. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. In 1946, a Bedouin shepherd boy called Mohammed Ed Deeb was looking for a goat he'd lost in the hills above the Dead Sea. He threw a rock into a cave and heard a hollow sound. He'd hit a ceramic jar containing an ancient manuscript. This was the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a collection of about a thousand texts dating from around 250 BC to AD 68. It contains biblical texts, legal documents, community rules and more literary writings. It's the most substantial first-hand evidence we have for the beliefs and practices of Judaism up to the lifetime of Jesus Christ. The Dead Sea Scrolls have transformed our understanding of how the texts that make up the Hebrew Bible were edited and collected. They also offer a tantalising window into the world from which Christianity eventually emerged. With me to discuss the Dead Sea Scrolls are Sarah Pierce, Ian Cardin, Professor of Jewish Studies and Head of the School of Humanities at the University of Southampton, Charlotte Hempel, Professor of Hebrew Bible and Second Temple Judaism at the University of Birmingham, and George Brooke, Rylands Professor Emeritus of Biblical Criticism and Exegesis at the University of Manchester. George Brooke, when and how did the Dead Sea Scrolls first come to light? Well, you mentioned, uh, Melvin, the goat, and this is probably late 1946, early 1947, the Bedouin were very cagey about how the discoveries actually happened for obvious reasons. But the version that I particularly like is that uh, Mohammed Adib indeed found three or four scrolls by throwing a stone and it hit a, a jar in a cave as he was looking for the goat. Um, he went back to the camp and showed one of his fellow Bedouin shepherds these scrolls and they became interested and one of them went back uh, the next day or shortly thereafter and found some more scrolls. Uh, and this becomes important because we seem to have two lots from this first discovery uh, of Cave One. In 1949, a couple of years later, Cave One was excavated by uh, archaeologists uh, to verify that the scrolls actually came from that place. Subsequently, between 1951 and 1956, another ten caves uh, have produced manuscripts in that region. At the same time, people were looking now throughout the Judean wilderness to find uh, manuscripts and other artefacts, if possible, and several other sites have produced material. There's a fairy tale aspect of this, isn't there? What happened to the boy? Uh, <laughs> that we don't quite know. He seems to have lived uh, to be an old man to tell stories. But of the 11 caves that have produced manuscripts at and near 
the site Qumran on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, the Bedouin discovered most of them. When were they first gathered together? When did this become, for the world of you three, a great event that, that archaeologists gathered around said this is an amazing and they did and I'm not you I'm not I'm not being hyperbolic. This is an amazing thing. We must get down to examine every fragment of this. When did that begin to get underway? Well, it began in 1947. Uh, there was a professor, Eliezer Sukanik, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who, in November 1947, uh, acquired three scrolls, and that's possibly one of those initial discoveries. The other scrolls from the first set of uh, seven that were discovered by the Bedouin ended up with Mar Athanasius Samuel, the Syrian Orthodox Metropolitan in Jerusalem, and they uh, were taken eventually to the American School of Oriental Research in Jerusalem for the Americans to have a look at. So, to begin with, it was Sukanik and one or two of his colleagues at the Hebrew University working on one set of scrolls, and he published photographs and transcriptions very quickly. Then the Americans working on the other three subsequently when Cave 4 was discovered in 1952, the number of manuscripts uh, was so great that those in Jordan uh, and at the Palestine Archaeological Museum who were responsible for purchasing the material from the Bedouin decided they needed to create a scholarly team. And that team began to work, especially on the Cave 4 fragments. Um, but there is a a fourth story of scholarly endeavour, which is the general release of all the scrolls uh, for scholarship in 1991. And that's when there's been a restart of interest in, in the scrolls. Thank you. Uh, Charlotte, Charlotte Hempel, um, can you give the listeners some idea of the range of scrolls? Yeah, it's around a thousand. Around a thousand? Yeah. Most of them are in small pieces, but we reckon with around a thousand. And uh, the range of material is um, a block of material that is biblical manuscripts, which is around 200. And uh, those are clearly texts that we could identify more easily. Are we talking about one K or the whole lot? All of them. Right. All of them together, okay. yeah. Um, because there were the seven uh, big scrolls from Cave 1, and mm. then the numbers are really made up to a large extent by Cave 4, because that cave um, had a huge amount of material, but a lot of it quite fragmentary, uh, some just in small pieces, but also some with, with considerable size, sort of broken up pages, columns. So we, we were able, scholars were able to identify clearly anything that we'd known before more easily, including the biblical material. Then we found material in the original Aramaic of texts that we already knew in other languages, um, such as, for instance, uh, a work known as Von Enoch, which we knew in its entirety from Ge'ez, classical Ethiopic, and scholars had suspected that it had originally been written in a Semitic language, and we found the original Aramaic, um, some of the original Aramaic fragments. Um, and then, for me, very exciting is a large amount of material that we've never seen before. We didn't know it existed at all, including Jewish legal material. Uh, that's very uh, interesting because the um, teachings that we know from rabbinic literature is uh, that 
Moses received the written law and the oral law at the same time and it was faithfully on the mountain and it was faithfully transmitted through a chain of authorities and we we now know uh, that there was also written law at this earlier period and then we found uh, exquisite copies also of texts that describe the life and regulations of a community which um, was attractively thought then to match the site that was excavated in a settlement in the 50s, right near those caves. We also found a war scroll. What was scroll. that community called? Were these Essenes? Well, people argue about that. Yeah. The term Essenes comes from the classical authors. It was thought that based on some similarities, which admittedly are there, we should then assume these are the Essenes. However, I tend to think when we do scholarship with texts, it's a bit like being a chemist in a lab. If you have one Petri dish with evidence, which is actually 2,000 years old uh, and primary data we didn't have before, it's important to keep that separately from the accounts of other people and then compare it afterwards when you've analysed it. So I think more recently people still acknowledge the similarities to the accounts of the Essenes. A lot of people still think there were Essenes. But I would prefer, and many others would, to actually call it the movement that at one point settled at Qumran. Did different caves have different sorts of collections? Or was each cave the collection that was there had been put there at different times by different authorities? Or was Anyway, you know yes. the question. No, that's, it's a very good question. Uh, and it is the case that the different caves do have a somewhat different character. Cave 1 had scrolls clearly placed with great care inside these cylindrical jars that we now call scroll jars and wrapped with linen, whereas in Cave 4 we had a huge amount of material, some of which is rather esoteric you might say so for instance we have some use of well cryptic writing which may be performative or it may really have been particularly secretive we have a case where we have words in cryptic writing that we have in the same text in the normal hebrew writing we have several copies of the same text in k4 so it seems to be potentially a lot of calendrical learning technical stuff Perhaps, in my view, is something I've written on, that was a sort of particularly learned collection, sort of more scholarly. And then in Cave um, cave 11, we have some magnificent scrolls, uh, like the Temple Scroll and a very large Psalm Scroll. And in Cave 7, we have some small amount of Greek fragments that may have been a particular scholar's place. Thank you very much, Sarah. Sarah Pierce. The texts date from the Second Temple period. What does that mean? When was it? Right, it's a very long period, from 515 BCE until 70 CE. Well, we have to think, first of all, of the First Temple uh, period, which um, begins with the Temple of King Solomon, which was built around 1000 BCE and was then destroyed by the Babylonians in uh, 586 BCE. So there's a period in which the leadership of Jerusalem is deported to Babylon, the famous Babylonian exile, uh, and much in terms of reconstruction and thinking about the reasons for the destruction of the first temple goes on in that period. So the second temple is the temple that is built and completed in 515 BCE um, at the command of 
originally Cyrus the Great, the Persian king who had conquered the Babylonians um, and had commanded that among other temples in the uh, now Persian Empire, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem should be rebuilt. The second temple period itself, because that's really what we're talking about here, is enormously varied. Where did the main knowledge of the history of Judaism, let's call it that for shorthand at the moment, yes. come from before the scrolls? From Josephus, from Josephus's writings, and to some extent from Philo's writings as well. Um, Josephus is really our only major source for the Second Temple period, which is the period in which we see the origins of Judaism develop after the rebuilding of the temple, which becomes the Second Temple. What were his dates and what did he write? Josephus is born in 37, uh, exact contemporary of Caligula, and he dies sometime after 100 CE. He, he was originally a Jerusalem priest and an aristocrat who traced his, his lineage to, to a royal background. Um, he fought in the f first Jewish war against Rome from 66, but he was captured quite quickly and imprisoned by the Romans. And because he predicted the rise to power of Vespasian, who was the general in charge of suppressing the revolt, he was released and joined the Roman side and stayed with the Roman side moved to Rome as a member of the imperial household and that is where he wrote his writings which are a proud defence and promotion of Jewish history in the face of an extremely difficult time for the Jews after the suppression of the First Revolt. So he writes first of all a history of the Jewish war and it's in that Jewish war um, that he writes about the Essenes in particular so that's of, of great interest Could we to call us. them a tribe? Um, he, he calls them a people, yes. Genos, yes. He also writes in his own autobiography, which he writes towards the end of the century, about having actually experimented in his educational life with being an Essene for a year uh, and also belonging to other or uh, training with other Jewish movements, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and eventually going off to live with a hermit in, in the wilderness in order to live the ascetic life. But ultimately he writes... Um, voluminous histories about the, the the lives of the Jews from the creation of the world onwards. Are we finding stuff, or you, <laughs> people who found the Bedouins and so on, finding material that was not known before? So is this an amazing original discovery as well as being voluminous and, uh, and filling things out? From the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes. Oh yes, absolutely. We, we're finding a, a huge amount of material that we didn't know before, as well as, of course, uh, a huge amount of new information about the state of the biblical text itself uh, in, in very varied forms. Um, so, so it turns, as it were, what's called the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. That's right, yes. Many, many copies, as I think Charlotte mentioned, uh, there's a very significant number of, of biblical manuscripts, and they show the different kinds of texts that were available, that some of the texts we knew from a later period were, um, uh, for, for example, the Greek translation of the Bible from Qumran, we have Hebrew examples of a text that's much closer to the Greek translation and shows the origin, the likely Hebrew origin of that, which is different from the traditional Hebrew text. George, the scrolls are thought to belong to a community, we've mentioned there, of the Essenes. Who were they and why are they significant in this story? The Essenes are a group associated with Judea. They are supposedly uh, morally excellent. They uh, have a strict interpretation of the law. Uh, most of them are thought to be celibate uh, by Philo and Josephus. They 
strictly observe the Sabbath. These are the characteristics which we find also overlapping with motifs in texts like the rule of the community from the Qumran caves. And that's led people to identify the Qumran community as not Essenes strictly, but as some kind of Essene, given that the community at Qumran was at a maximum size, about 100 people. Uh, There must have been many Essenes uh, elsewhere, and possibly different types of Essene, more different than either Philo or Josephus actually let on. Charles, can I come to you to, to develop this idea of the Essenes in the community? What do they mean? What do you mean by a community, then? What are we talking about? In one sense, we mean a community that calls itself the Yachat, which is a noun that means together. It comes from the root together. Um, and that occurs frequently in the community rule. And we have a sense from the community rule that we are talking about a single community living together. Um, However, we also have another document which shares some aspects with the community rule but is also distinct, called the Damascus document. And in that document, communal life is described as in a number of different camps, The members of the Damascus community, um, just a shorthand because that's the name of the document, are married on the whole. Their children, when they come of age, young young men, join with an oath. Uh, We have references to uh, marriage, to living in camps where there is an overseer. And this overseer gets involved in family life. So uh, a passage that we found in the K4 material... Uh, mentions a case where a prospective husband might challenge his bride's virginity and the overseer gets involved and nominates uh, experienced, trustworthy women to come and examine this prospective bride to check whether she is or hasn't been virtuous uh, before uh, getting married. So we know that there were even, in that sense, professional women involved. Um, so it's there are actually it's it's perhaps better to talk about a movement with several location in view, but there is because of the similarities also in terms of their aspirations something in common, which is why we say a movement. Some of whom moved to Qumran at some point. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Coming down to the temple in Jerusalem, mm. what role did that play? in this history that we find. Temple is absolutely fundamental to Jewish life in, in, in antiquity. Jewish life completely revolves around it. So people like Josephus and Philo talk about the importance of Jews staking their life on the defence of, of the Jerusalem temple to give you... A, I mean, did they go that. every day? Did they, uh, so some people would go every day. Priests would be uh, required to uh, attend to offer sacrifices there from time to time, but essentially there would be people going uh, every day, but they wouldn't be the same people. But there mm. was a requirement for male Jews to uh, uh, to visit the temple three times a year for the pilgrimage festival. So it was really key and key to the life of Jews across the world, the the world in which Jews lived, because the Second Temple period is a really important period for the diaspora of the Jews. So for diaspora Jews, it's seen as a kind of mother city um, uh, centre for them, that it's the the key for their self-identification. So if you ask about the place of the temple in the scrolls, well, I think one of the, the big 
takeaways from the discovery of the scrolls and the complete publication of them is the huge variety of views contained in the scrolls. And this includes big variety of views on the place of the temple. In, in the early days of scholarship, there was a sense that the community rule in particular gave out the view of the group that they rejected the temple and that there was a history to that rejection which revolved around conflict with the high priesthood in Jerusalem. Um, there's more of a debate now about that question, but certainly the community rule there are texts within the community rule that indicate that the community believed itself to be a replacement of the sacrificial cult in Jerusalem. Whether this means that the community actually rejected the temple in Jerusalem or not, there is a debate on that question. There is no explicit text among the scrolls that makes it clear that the temple was rejected. But many of the scrolls that could be associated with the movement, as you call it, Charlotte, or which would be compatible with the views of the movement, are highly critical of the temple as it was being run at the time. Could we develop that, uh, George? Yes, so in the community rule, as Sarah mentions, we find very elegant, beautiful passages which seem to suggest that the community thought of itself as the temple. So, in a way, the, te the community is a substitute for the temple. But alongside such representations, we also find the manuscript of the temple scroll from Cave 11, which offers a view of the temple that should have been built, but never was in the second temple period, or even by Solomon in the first temple period. And the Temple Scroll is, is fascinating because it seems to be uh, written out, copied, during the Herodian period. And, of course, it was Herod the Great who was the great rebuilder of the Second Temple just before the time of Jesus, though the work was, was ongoing. And in the Temple Scroll, there is reference to yet another temple which God himself will build at the end of time. So there is a lot of discussion about the temple, the nature of the temple and what it represents. So again, is this new material as far as scholars like yourself are concerned? Very much so, yes, indeed. And, it must um, be very exciting. Well, it, it is very exciting. Yeah. Its excitement partly is the result of the way in which information about the scrolls dribbled out slowly until 1991, and then there's been this great chance for a resurgence of interest in the scrolls and a revisiting of the work of the first generation of scholars. Charlotte, can you tell us what the scrolls tell us about the, about the languages of the time? Yeah. Uh, languages, I stress that. Yes, I uh, can, yeah. Please. Uh, it may be helpful just to tell our listeners that the Hebrew Bible, despite being called the Hebrew Bible, already has two languages in it and includes a number of chapters in Aramaic in the Book of Daniel and also some documents that claim to be written by the Persian administration in Ezra. So we can see in both of these biblical books that are quite late that Aramaic is beginning to make an incursion into the biblical text. Since, even from before the Persian period, Aramaic had become an administrative important language in the region all the way from Mesopotamia to our area. 
So it's not surprising that we found some Aramaic Dead Sea Scrolls. But what is very interesting, that most of the scrolls in Aramaic deal with a period from long ago in the past. The what patriarchs, does long ago mean in your terms? Uh, it's, it deals with figures that are patriarchs and matriarchs, <coughs> such as Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Levi. So it seems to be used more for a kind of age from from long ago and what is perhaps no one would have ex well we all would have expected the biblical text to be in Hebrew but we wouldn't really have expected to have huge texts and scrolls of the life of the community meters long composed at this period in Hebrew Why we might have expected that it is Aramaic because yeah. of that turn towards Aramaic yes. one potential reason for that move to Hebrew in a community like this, which is a very elite community, very learned, very perhaps a bit conservative and priestly, it may have had something to do with the Hasmonean period, which was really a very uh, nationalist uh, victory of uh, the, uh, the Jewish rebels of the first revolt, where Hebrew is, is, is emerging. So we've got these, these languages there. Most of it is in Hebrew, 85%, 12% uh, in uh, Aramaic and 3% in Greek. Uh, and the Greek, uh, the Greek pieces are very small, so people are uh, having quite lengthy scholarly debates on what is translated here. So it is a multilingual environment with most of it in Hebrew and it doesn't seem to be entirely random which parts are in Aramaic. Thank you. Sarah, um, what do the scrolls tell us about the relationship between Judaism and the wider world of the Eastern Mediterranean? Well, continuing that issue about Greek, I mean, the fact that in Cave 7 there were only Greek texts um, found indicates probably that at least some people um, in the community used them and were able to read them. These are mostly Greek, they're fragmentary, but they're texts of the books of Moses. As far as we know from Jewish tradition that comes to us through people like Philo and Josephus, the Torah or the five books of Moses was translated into Greek in Alexandria in the 3rd century BC. Now, the earliest of those Greek texts is 2nd century BC, so it's only a century later that we're finding them at Qumran. They are among the earliest texts we have of the Greek Bible. So this suggests at least uh, the acceptability of Greek Bible texts among the community or the people who house them. It's also interesting that that Cave 7, in which only Greek texts were found, is very close to the settlement. It's very easily accessible, which suggests that people were, you know, using these texts. They were working texts. So clearly we have a sense of, of at least the language of the outside world being engaged among the community. In terms of attitudes towards the wider world, the scrolls in general if we're thinking about the very particular ones linked to the movement, are generally very hostile to the outside world. They're also hostile... The hostile to the, world is not non-Jewish world. Hostile even to the rest of the Jewish world. I see. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> and to some extent even more hostile to the rest of the <laughs> Jewish world because their histories have this sense that, they have, that their leaders in the past have been betrayed by members of the, of the Jewish elite, uh, probably in Jerusalem and connected to the high priesthood. George, did the scrolls change your idea, or scholars like yourself, idea of, of 
of Jewish history. The scrolls themselves contain very little direct uh, reference to historical events. There are one or two names from particularly the first century BCE, but uh, it's very difficult to write a diachronic historical narrative on the basis of the scrolls themselves. But what the scrolls do enable is the kind of thing that Sarah uh, and Charlotte have alluded to, namely the construction of social history for Jews of the period, together with a much deeper understanding of the cultural developments and interactions of the period in which all Jews in Judea were participating. Josephus, when he describes Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, is really describing the differences between these groups because he's trying to convince his non-Jewish readership of the character of these different groups. Since the scrolls have been around, scholars have tended to give more attention to what many Jews had in common, not um, disallowing that there were differences between these various groups, uh, but uh, allowing a picture that shows us that there were real uh, debates going on about the character of God, about the nature of scriptural tradition and how it should be represented in the community, uh, debates about the temple, as Sarah has discussed, um, debates which are relevant, in fact, for our own uh, period, about the nature of kingship and uh, the constitution uh, of Israel as the Hasmoneans had taken upon themselves um, the role of kings. Uh, and it seems as if uh, the community... Uh, group uh, of Essenes represented in, in these scrolls had alternative views uh, about kingship. The, thank you very much, Sarah. Jesus Christ is not mentioned in the scrolls, but it strays into the era of Christ. It goes up to about 78 AD, something like that, that we think. What's your take on that? What's really important in terms of understanding Christian origins and the context of Jesus is that the scrolls give us firsthand a, a sense of of the culture and the variety of Judaism that existed in the later Second Temple period to which Jesus belongs. But Jesus was a Galilean Jew, very far away from Qumran, and of course there are debates about what exactly was Jesus's own message um, but it would appear that fundamental to his um, teaching are parables and also the working of, of healing um, activity um, and, and that sort of activity is not reflected in the scrolls however there is the famous story of Jesus in a synagogue opening the scroll of Isaiah reading from it and saying effectively this text is being fulfilled today as you listen to me teaching that God is intervening in history and, and I am part of that and I get that sense that this, the commentaries that have been found from Qumran which are not known from other places which have been given the technical term Pesharim they are commentaries which read biblical books as prophecies that will be fulfilled in the future and have been interpreted as having been fulfilled or will be in the future. And I think that is something that you have in common, at least with those traditions about 
uh, about Jesus. Uh, in terms of other traditions that go into the New Testament, one would emphasize things in common with aspects of, of um, ideas I- I- from the scrolls, such as the idea of the, being in the last days, the final time. That's very important in some of, of the scrolls, I would say. One of the areas that is really interesting is something that George just pointed out, and he may be able to add to it, that the same biblical texts that are the most popular, where we have most copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the Psalms, Genesis, Deuteronomy and Isaiah, and Isaiah again, yes. are also the front runners of the texts of the Bible that are used in the New Testament and quoted most frequently because we have to remember that at the time that the New Testament was uh, written, the Bible was still what is now the Old Testament or the Tanakh for Jews and consulted. So that suggests to me that these particular biblical texts were studied by groups perhaps before Christians had parted together. And because we're dealing with scrolls, it's very interesting that before you have the canon and the form of a beginning and an end of a collection, not every place would have had all the different scrolls. And we can tell that these Christian communities shared the same favourites. We also know that much of the historical material all the way from the conquest of the land all the way through the monarchy, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of these texts don't really... They may have all been lost or eaten by rats in the caves, but it is quite interesting that there wasn't that much interest in in them as in the Pentateuch and in Isaiah and the Psalms. Can you tell us what we learned about, uh, George, about the messianic apocalypse and the Son of God phrase which keeps coming up? Well, these are two texts of particular interest. What's interesting in the messianic apocalypse is that attention is given to the role of God himself in the messianic age. The messiah plays along. Uh, There's debate amongst scholars about whether this messiah is a priest or a prophet or some uh, kingly figure, Uh, but attention is on on God himself. Um, What's intriguing is that the text says that in the messianic age the Lord will accomplish glorious things which have never been for he will heal the wounded and revive the dead and bring good news uh, to the poor which is a a pastiche of bits of Isaiah and the Psalms Um, intriguingly in none of the biblical texts cited is there any mention of revival of the dead but when Jesus constructs a response to John the Baptist's disciples who come to him, uh, according to Luke and Matthew, to ask, who are you? He replies to them with a version of Isaiah that includes this very phrase. And that seems to imply that Jesus himself was aware of the kind of Jewish traditions which we find associated with the coming of the Messiah in a text like the Messianic Apocalypse. As for the Son of God text, this is a a text which we might take most seriously in relation to how the New Testament authors 
try to describe the messianism of Jesus. This is a text, uh, interestingly, in Aramaic and seems to belong in the traditions of the book of Daniel. And it has some kind of Jewish seer explaining to a Gentile king uh, visionary material. And it describes this son of God who will be called great. The son of God, he will be proclaimed. And the son of the Most High, they will call him. Luke in particular, seems to know this Aramaic tradition because uh, in the interaction between the angel Gabriel and Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1, verses 32 and 35, we find precisely the same phrases being used as Luke defines Jesus as Son of God, yeah. Son of the Most High. Can I come back to you, Charlotte? How have modern techniques advanced the study of these scrolls? In some senses, um, the period from the 40s and 50s when the scrolls were found uh, has also been the beginning of much uh, technological and scientific progress and the scrolls kind of often featured on that journey alongside the scientific progress. So photography was quite um, elementary at that time and any uh, fans of the history of photography can look at the photographer Albina, who Anton Albina, who photographed a lot of scrolls, and you can see the equipment. More recently, we are now we used uh, technology for the Dead Sea Scrolls that was developed by NASA to get um, really high pixelated images for a period. But the most recent development is Google technology, which is multispectral imaging of the scrolls that has been undertaken at great scale and is available for any of our listeners to look at at, uh, at the website of the Leon Levi Dead Sea Scrolls Digital Library, which is made available by the Israel Museum, where there's also information available. And then the other really interesting developments in terms of uh, scientific support for our work is the study of carbon-14 dating. Very early on when uh, somebody called Villard Libby at the University of Chicago was working on carbon-14 testing, he tested a little bit of linen from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But at that time, you needed one to two, three grams to test something. And the latest technology, which is called accelerator mass spectrometry, requires only a milligram of original material. So that has been used to um, carbon-14 date a number of actual, actual scroll materials as well, which confirm the general antiquity of the material and the sort of ballpark of when the scrolls were copied. Thank you very much. Sarah, do you think, as a result of what Charlotte has been saying, the views on the scrolls from persons like yourself have changed a lot or have they been refined? Oh, I think they've they've changed enormously since, Can you give us one since the first discovery. Yes, well, so the beginnings are in 1947 and at that point I think it would be fair to say that the general view of ancient Judaism was that it was a rather sad spectacle. Uh, that That's certainly a view in some uh, Christian traditions that it was often called late Judaism as though it was on the way out uh, and uncreative and unspiritual in its outlook. Also, from a Jewish perspective, it's often described 
described in terms of a normative Judaism or orthodoxy that very much represented the, uh, an earlier example of what becomes rabbinic Judaism. What we see actually as a result of the scrolls is the enormous variety of Jewish traditions that are assembled in this collection, including conflicting traditions. And there's a certain tolerance for difference in this collection, which says something about the people who put them uh, together. I think another thing that has changed a great deal, though, is also our understanding of the relationship between the archaeology of the settlement of Kirbet Qumran and the scrolls themselves. Uh, and that helps us to have a different view of the history that's likely to lie behind the scrolls of the movement, that they do not begin with Qumran. So early histories of the so-called Qumran community traced it back to the beginning of the Hasmonean period. Which is when, exactly? Um, so, well, 150s BCE, uh, and the time of the, uh, the, the first Hasmonean high priest, Jonathan, um, whom some people thought was the wicked priest who persecuted the leader of the group who is known cryptically as the teacher of righteousness in the scrolls. Um, we now know from, uh, particularly from the publication of the archaeological reports that was not actually released until the mid-90s, despite the excavations taking place in the 50s. Um, I think the consensus view is now that the the settlement was not started until around 100 to 75 BCE. So the movement must have begun somewhere else. Qumran is not the beginning of the movement. What is it then? Um, that's the big question. And one of the most interesting uh, studies on this question in recent times, which is by Sidney White Crawford, is that it represents a library of the Essenes. It's not a headquarters exactly, but it's a library where they, they stored their treasures and their treasured manuscripts and where some people worked alongside uh, copying them, preserving them. We're getting towards the end of the programme now, unfortunately. But, George, can you... Give us some idea of the uh, of the significance of all this, some overall idea. I think the overall significance of the scrolls is that it allows us to redraw our picture of Judaism in the late Second Temple period. We now have access to, if you like, Hillel's bedtime reading or what Jesus might have been looking at uh, and learning from a whole new picture of Judaism emerges, one which shows an immense richness spiritually, uh, and we have to be appreciative of all that. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you very much, George, George Brook, Sarah Pierce, and Charlotte Hempel, and to our studio engineer, Duncan Hanant. Next week, the Shimabara Rebellion in Japan in 1637-8. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What was not in the programme that you think we should have had in the programme? Well, perhaps I, I would start uh, by suggesting that a couple of things uh, were not in the, in the programme, <laughs> which I would say were important from my point of view. The first is that we've not discussed uh, in any way the religious significance for the modern period of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, modern period you mean now? Now. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that uh, one of the really interesting um, features of the scrolls is that they speak loudly of the diversity of Judaism in the late Second Temple period. 
Um, and in doing that, they allow us to see uh, a richness in uh, Jewish uh, religion, Jewish practice, Jewish belief, uh, which we had no uh, real idea about uh, from previous sources. Uh, and I wish that modern Jews and uh, many modern Christians would appreciate the scrolls in terms of what they tell us about how any religious tradition should enable its diversity rather than look for um, a, a narrow, uh, perhaps even fundamentalist form of singularity in approach to things. The scrolls show us diversity in all its richness. We've talked a lot about the social history that we get from the Dead Sea Scrolls and we touched on the fact that they are elite text. I think it is important to bear in mind that the great majority of people would not have access to reading any of this at the time. They would certainly not be represented at all in it. Um, and in my view, it is likely that the community included some of these people who were... Uh, operating on a more menial level and doing jobs um, and we in one sense the intellectual richness of it perhaps covers quite a lot of that elite stratum given how much we now know is in there but we don't really know too much about from these texts what ordinary people were thinking uh, one example where we might have some access to that is some apotropaic material that deals with an approach that um, helps fight off or protect you from a, an attack of some kind. That we know that in the ancient world, death and illness and disability was much more widespread. And we have a number of passages, even in the community rule in the prayer at the end, that you might pray at certain times, also at a time when something strikes you suddenly. So the idea was quite widespread that there were demonic forces at large who might strike you, particularly perhaps in the night time or at childbirth. And what's really interesting is that the scrolls way, other than driving out a demon, what we get in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the one of the responses is to bless God and his mighty deeds. So it's almost by overpowering the power of those forces. I think that's perhaps something that was more widespread at the time but we need to have humility about all of the people that were also part of that social history that we don't get access to and uh, probably did actually play a part of that life but did not get mentioned yes would you like to say anything? well i i think one of the interesting questions which we probably can't answer is what happened to the people at qumran why did they not go back why did no one go back for these very wonderful, valuable collections. Um, we know that there is evidence of mass destruction at the site, which indicates that the Romans destroyed it in around 68 CE, during the course of the first Jewish revolt. We know that they um, destroyed areas nearby, like Jericho, at this time. Um, it's possible that Vespasian, the general in charge of the suppression of the Jewish revolt, was at Qumran leading the 
um, command to to deal with it there. But we have no evidence of bodies from Qumran. Um, Jose- I would just put this together with what Josephus says about the Essenes. And one of the things he really emphasises is how courageous and manly they are, that they're very brave yeah. in the face of death. And he explicitly says at the end of his account of the Essenes that in the course of, of the Jewish war, they were tortured by the Romans who were trying to force them to betray their ancestral mm. secrets and they died with a smile on their face, refusing to give in. So mm. should, we, should we combine those traditions? I think our producer's coming in. I think we've got everything we need. That was really BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I hear sobbing. And I absolutely knew that nobody else was in the house. Uncanny is back. The on-duty flight lieutenant came in white as a sheet. And he said, it's back. Season two, featuring brand new stories of real life encounters with the supernatural. I had never been so scared in my life. I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe in what was in that house. Subscribe on BBC Sounds if you dare. Die riechen gut. Mhm. Darf ich einen? Mhm. Hol auch du den nur für dich, die Chicken McNuggets. Nur bei McDonalds. My Nuggets, my Rules. Throughout its reign, the British Empire stole a lot of stuff. Today, those objects are usually housed in museums and galleries, and they usually come with polite plaques. But the truth behind those objects, sometimes it's not so polite. My name is Mark Fennell, and come with me on a global adventure through the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, often tragic mysteries and how these artefacts got to where they live today. Stuff the British stole. Available wherever you get your podcasts.